short version, if we're going to solve the ground, the big environmental challenges we're up against, we have to start caring about forests and oceans the way we now care about friends and family. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. My guest today is Stephen Kotler, a New York Times bestselling author and award-winning journalist and the founder and executive director of the Flow Research Collective. Stephen is one of the world's leading experts on human performance. His work has been translated into over 40 languages, appeared in more than 100 publications, including New York Times Magazine, Time, Wall Street Journal, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Forbes, and on and on. Stephen is involved in environmental and animal rights work, so he has a lot going on. I talked to him for the School for Good Living podcast back in January of 2021 in episode 129 for his book, The Art of Impossible, a peak performance primer. In this interview today, we talk about Stephen's latest book, The Devil's Dictionary. It's a novel, a work of fiction, something that I really enjoyed. It's a near future thriller about the evolution of empathy in the tradition of William Gibson and Neil Stevenson. In this interview, we talk about empathy, why it's critical for us as humans to cultivate at this time, to expand our sphere of caring and how we can do so. Stephen shares personally from his life about his loving kindness practice, the skepticism he had coming into that, but the benefits he's found from doing it. He also talks about reframing, it can be a simple practice, not always easy, and how he's used it in his life and uh, it's improved the quality of his marriage, <laughs> among other things. Stephen also talks about nature-related awareness, what it is, why it's important, what a loss of that awareness has done to us, and how we can get some of it back. This book, I love, one of the things I love about it is some of the ideas it introduces me to, including mega linkages. It's uh, an idea that you can hear more about in this interview, but about how we can connect more nature for very specific reasons. And then we also talk about fiction versus nonfiction and why it's great to read nonfiction for facts, but fiction for perspective, which is the basis of wisdom. And Stephen has a unique and I think valuable view on that as someone who's written about 10 books of nonfiction and a few books now of fiction. You can learn more about Stephen and his work at stephencotler.com. With that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Stephen Kotler. Stephen, welcome back to the School for Good Living. Thank you for having me. It's good to be with you. Nice to see you again. Yeah, good to see you too. So last time we talked, I started with my favorite question, what's life about? We've covered that a little bit. People who want to hear your response can go hear our first conversation. But let me ask you this instead. What is going on on planet Earth these days? What are you seeing? What are you experiencing? What is up with what's happening now? Yeah, um, high anxiety, right? Just high anxiety um, everywhere. I think it, uh, I think it, you know, we are, we are definitely going through a, a tough period as a planet. Um, the past three years have been rough. Um, and you know, I, you know, the, 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 the economy is tricky and the environmental challenges that we're up against are, you know, more dire than they were. 
um, yeah. and, and they're closer. Um, downside upside is, you know, we're still, it's funny because Peter D. Mendes and I wrote abundance 2011. And despite, you know, this was about, Hey, we can use technology to solve grand global challenges. We didn't say it was going to happen automatically, but we said the technology is available and it's going to take a huge cooperative effort. We can get it done. And it's interesting because we looked at a bunch of metrics from, you know, decrease in poverty to, and with very few exceptions, all of those metrics are still like, they're staggeringly upward. We're still moving up on a lot of those trajectories. Now we also said in abundance that this, you know, this is, we're plotting exponential growth rates of technology. There's still going to be huge global pattern interrupts along the way. Sure. But, you know, one of the, one of the things that's interesting, COVID, which was so devastating for so many and, and ongoing has given us so much breakthrough medical technology, artificial intelligence technology. And what people don't realize is the same sort of AI breakthroughs that give us drug discovery um, also start giving us new foods and fuels and things like that. So this starts getting repurposed. And yes, the challenges are mounting. And I and that that seems very real, real. but there is um, there is reason for optimism. You know, I like yeah. I still... Um, but I still think it's, you know, it's the same issues. we got to figure out how to cooperate at scale and yeah. really go after these challenges. Yeah, no question. And, and what you're describing, I remember a few years ago, I read Buckminster Fuller's biography and he described this term emergence by emergency. <laughs> when things get bad enough, painful enough, sure, we'll change then. Maybe not before, or maybe if the incentive is big enough. But this brings me to your new book, The Devil's Dictionary. So this is interesting. You've written a book. Normally you're a, you're a nonfiction writer. I understand you've written a novel before. So this is your second novel. Third, actually. My third. Oh, this is your third. Oh. No, okay. So little known fact, I'm actually trained as a poet, undergraduate. And in graduate school, I'm trained as a novelist. Um, <laughs> and just coming out of graduate school, trying to figure out how do you pay the bills while you're writing your first novel sure. that I walked into journalism. Um, that was, so that was how I transitioned in. And I, you know, I came in with my deep interest in science and a lot of the other stuff that I've been writing about for years in technology and, and, and whatever. So that was the stuff I started covering. And that was the stuff, you know, and the, the 10 books or 11 books I've written about those topics are what I'm, I'm sort of known for, but there's three novels there and they've done pretty well along the way. Yeah, that's awesome. And one of the things that I'm uh, kind of re recalling because I'm not a huge sci-fi fan. I do like science fiction. I remember my neighbor, he was a programmer for Unisys and his office in his basement was floor to ceiling sci-fi novels. He'd read them all. And I think it's amazing how these things that we sometimes imagine, or maybe they're given to us, who knows how that whole creative process works, that they become a reality, right? Things in a book can become something real. It, it, it's so it's a good transition to the devil's dictionary because exactly why I wrote the book, but um, historically things show up first in, in fiction. And the reason, I mean, that this is, this isn't a mystery. The <laughs> brain is designed to turn thoughts into things, right? Like that's what we do, but there's an intermediate step and language is that intermediate step. We have a lot of inchoate ideas. Once we put language around them, 
we can start to hold them in our heads and move them around and combine the parts in new ways. And that allows us to actually build them and create them in the real world. So this is a really natural transition in terms of how the brain normally works. And sci-fi has really, you know, I think it's abetted that process a lot, especially because the technologists, as you pointed out, the coders, the people actually working with the technology and inventing the technology have read all the sci-fi. Yep. So it's, you know, some of it's a map for that stuff. And in the devil's dictionary, we've just been talking about the challenges the world's facing. And I, you know, I'm deeply concerned about the environmental challenges that these are issues I've worked on my whole life, animal rights and, and environmental issues. And I wanted to envision a world, our world, 15 years hence, where the biggest environmental challenges, climate change, the species die off, had been the worst parts of it averted. This is not, I wasn't interested in a perfect utopia, nothing like that. I knew averting these challenges are going to cause other problems and create other stuff. But I wanted to say, okay, let's, there's so much climate fiction or so much sci-fi that's, you know, got this really dystopian view of where we're going near future. And I wanted to say, hey, wait a minute. Like we can still have problems, but like, what does it look like if we've solved some of the big environmental ones? And then I asked myself the question, this is essentially what the book is about. Like, what are the big changes in society? Not just technological changes that's covered, of course, but emotional changes, personal changes. How do we have to change as individuals, as a species to actually allow this new future to, to come into being? And that's sort of what the devil's dictionary is about now mind you it's a paul's pine and can't put it down turn you know paul thriller as as hopefully you've discovered along the way um that's a lot of fun to read but there's that's the big theme at the top of it that i was really trying to get at yeah that, I, I love that and it is something i appreciate about your work that it does have an optimistic it's not a utopian slant by any stretch it's not a pollyanna you know toxic posi toxic positivity kind of orientation but it's a realistic look at what's possible and, you know, when I asked my 18 year old daughter, I'm like, Hey, what's your view of the future? Like, really, what do you think? What do you friends think? And basically the response is we're all screwed <laughs> and there's nothing we can do, you know? And it's really, um, for me, disheartening because yeah, that's one future that people are living into, but another future that you've painted where it's not perfect, but we've addressed and overcome some things, but this change that's so central to this about empathy. I thought I find that so fascinating because I know it's not policy. It's not technology that's going to save us if anything will, but no, I think it's, a, it's li, li, the book takes as its core theme. What I have termed empathy for all, this is empathy for all human beings, of course, but it's really empathy that crosses species lines, it's empathy for plants, for animals, for ecosystems. And, um, short version, if we're going to solve, the grand, the big environmental challenges we're up against. We have to start caring about forests and oceans the way we now care about friends and family. And we have what psychologists call a sphere of caring. And, you know, in most people, it's not that wide. Um, it's your immediate family. It's a couple of close friends outside of that. Maybe it goes a little bit farther, but you can widen it out. And this is actually interesting because a lot of my work with flow, flow, peak, the peak performance state of flow, one of the things it does, it amplifies a lot of different skills, but it also amplifies empathy and what's known as nature relatedness or ecological awareness. This is our ability to see, perceive, and care about the natural world. Flow, actually most altered states of consciousness, but flow in particular will automatically expand 
uh, our sphere of caring to the natural world. And one of the reasons um, this is so critical from an environmental standpoint is the human brain uh, has to filter out a tremendous amount of data to just like live in the world, right? We take in 11 million bits of external information a second. Forget what we're generating internally at the voice in our head and everything else, but like senses are pouring in 11 million bits. Consciousness, like everything that you could be aware of is 2000 bit outputs, right? 2000 bits. And what you can actually focus on is about 180 bits, 200 bits. So it's really tiny. So the brain always is like sifting and sorting and trying to tease apart what's critical, what's casual, what can I forget about? We live in boxes. We stare at boxes all day long, right? We're, I'm staring at a box inside a box inside a box right now <laughs> to have this conversation with you. And this is not unusual in the 21st century. My brain has decided that box world is most critical. So it starts filtering out those things that are not box world, plants, animals, and ecosystems. So you talk to eco-psychologists who study how we perceive the natural world or neuroscientists, they're going to say, look, we're in the middle of this giant environmental mess because we are literally can't see, perceive, or care about biologically the very stuff we're trying to save. And so that uh, is an issue when I looked at like what has to change in society. Yeah, there's a lot of technological stuff that we got to change. And there's a lot of, but we got to change that at a really foundational level. So the question, you know, the book starts with, uh, a, you know, the book is sort of like about a, a rogue psychedelic that automatically produces this effect in people. And this is, you know, this isn't new. Robin Card Harris, the, uh, who I, I've been lucky enough to collaborate with, who's at Imperial College in London, who's done all the brain scanning work on all the psychedelics, has a new paper out on how psychedelic use, especially if you use psychedelics in nature, expands nature relatedness. And why does this matter? The wider your nature relatedness is, the bigger it is, direct correlation to environmental activism. Small scale, like I'm going to recycle at home. Big scale, I'm going to go out there and do something about forest health, ocean health, plastic in the oceans, that sort of stuff. So these are deep correlations. If you want a better future, we have to kind of ignite this fire in people. Yeah. And that's not the only scientific kind of insight that is in this book, right? I, I learned a lot. This is one of the things uh, I love is when I can be entertained and I learn. <laughs> well, that's, you, thank you so much. Cause that's like, you know, I always say if my writing is doing its job, I'm making you laugh, which to me is the sign of the ultimate side of entertainment is like, you're turning the pages and you're, and you're laughing um, and I'm blowing your mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? I want like, I want you to be laughing and then I want you to stop and go, Oh my God, what did you just, what? And yeah. to have that moment and, you know, all the technology, the funny thing is it's a sci-fi book based on sci-fi, right? Everything in that book is based on current technologies rolled into the future. Very little exists in the book that isn't somewhere in a lab today. There's a couple of outliers, but as a general, all that stuff, it not quite possible. We're getting there pretty damn fast. Yeah. Well, tell me about one of these, because I think if people listening aren't familiar with this concept, it's one that they'll be interested in. This one about mega linkages. Perfect. Yeah, it's a great place to start. So let's uh, let's just talk about conservation biology for a second. So the field of conservation biology dates back to the 70s. It was really founded by a guy named Michael Soule. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. And uh, he made a number of like observations that are like dropped it obvious to us now that we're not that. But one, he figured out that he was researching populations on islands. And he realized that on, on all islands, populations are really prone to extinction events, 
right? There's a limited gene pool and a volcano explodes or a hurricane blows in and half of the species gets wiped out. And the remain what's remainder, there's not a genetic diversity. You get inbreeding, the line dies out very quickly. This is an extinction event, really common on islands. But what he discovered is, holy crap, if you're an animal, you don't need the Pacific Ocean to form an island. You can have a two-lane road, a snake, which is preyed on from above, right, by birds, is instinctively hardwired not to expose its back to the sky. It will never cross a four-lane highway, right? A lot of animals work this way. So what he realized is, if we're going to save species, we have to find a way to connect our national parks. And so you've got big national parks. Let's connect them by tiny little migration corridors. So the animal plants and animals have room to roam. This is also, by the way, the number one thing we can do to protect plants and animals in the face of climate change because they need to migrate north into colder temperatures. Migration corridors allow this. This is not a controversial idea. Migration corridors, like the U.S. Department of Defense, when they take over a military base, they build migration corridors off the base for the animals. Um, like this is really standard practice. E.O. Wilson wrote about this in Half Earth. It's like the most heartbreaking. All these ideas <laughs> I've so, ever heard about the youth of the military. <laughs> and, yeah, no, it's. I mean, by the way, I hadn't either. I was doing all this research on the environment, what the military actually was doing that was good for the environment. Um, and what happened is back in the '90s, they just discovered like they were getting sued right and left. Right, you build a bombing range and all, and like, the spotted turtle, and suddenly like they can't bomb. And what do you do? And they figured out it was cheaper than fighting all the lawsuits was to actually double the habitat. So if they take over an area, they immediately try to buy equal land on the outside to get back to the plants and animals. So they don't have to have these environmental problems. And then they wanted to connect military bases through migration corridors. And a lot, so a lot of this stuff has been going on for a really long time. Um, and it's really, you know, it's smart thinking. The big project in America is known as Yellowstone to Yukon, like mm. bisecting the entire property. So what I did in my book is in today's world, we've got billionaires, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and what are they doing? They're competing to go into space. Who's going to be the first dude on the moon or on the Mars? And like, you know, and thank God that we've got like billionaire egos unlocking the space frontier. Thank you for that. I appreciate, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, that's a good use of your egos, I think. But I figured in the future, you're going to have billionaires competing to create mega linkages, right? These mm -hmm. huge environments. So that's a, the book is about, you know, our protagonist gets what, funny things start happening at one of these mega linkages. Bodies turn up, weird species never before seen on Earth start showing up, and there's a competing billionaire and a competing mega language. And that's how, you know, it's a cyberpunk thriller. So you have to have shadowy, dangerous corporations in the background doing Blade Runner shit, right? Yeah. So that's what we got now with Megalink. This is at the heart of it because um, mainly because I think most people have your reaction. Like, what the fuck is a Meg, right? And yet yeah. this is like at the heart of so much deep environmental thinking. And I think it's not hard to grasp the idea. In fact, my entire, you, uh, we talked earlier about my book, Abundance. Where did abundance come from for me? I was researching mega linkages and I was like, okay, if we're going to save plants and animals, we need a lot of land. Where are we going to get it? We have to reinvent agriculture. We got to get agriculture off the farm and into the city. This led me to vertical farming, which is now everywhere. Also to cultured beef, growing steak from stem cells, no animals harmed along the way. And you don't need 30% of the planet's surface for 
ranching anymore, you can feed a lot more people with a, a lot smaller, right? And, you know, genetics for agriculture, all this stuff that we looked at in abundance, I, you know, all the environmental stuff in abundance was came out of my brain. Peter helps plant people. I help plants and animals. And that's how we come together in our books. And all my work was literally like, okay, these megalanges are fantastic, but we're going to need a lot of land if we're going to do this. Where can, and you know, the entire rewilding movement in Europe, which is enormous, right? Because this is, you know, these food transitions are happening there as well. Um, <laughs> same, same thing. This is, this is what, this is all these same ideas. We just don't use the term, I think, mega languages as much because it started, you know, in, before the, before climate change was everybody's issue, saying things like mega languages scared people. Now they're like, oh my God, this fights climate change and protects species and we're going to die if we don't protect species. Yeah, let's do this. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Well, and the economic incentive, uh, as you're saying as well, like with the military, they found it was cheaper than fighting these lawsuits just to make the investment well, in front if end. You're, I mean, if you, if you, if you look at it, if you look at mega linkages from a protect ecosystem services and a carbon sequestration perspective, right? If we, if we say, okay, these are not externalities in the market, these are core things that everybody should be valuing and paying for, because it's going to keep us alive. Um, they're incredibly good investments, really like astounding return on investments for mega languages. Yeah. What are your, what are your hopes for the book? What was, what does success for this book look like for you? Um, So I hope enough people, I, I mean, I, so I love writing fiction. I'll obviously never abandon fiction, but like I, you know, building up a career as a fiction writer allows me to keep going. So I just want people to love it so I can write another one. And that seems to be what's happening. The, the critical response has been pretty great to this book and people seem to really, really dig it. Um, so um, I just want to keep going. But I mean, also, you know, I want to, elevate the conversation around environmental topics because i feel like arguments that take place we're just arguing we're a we're arguing about the wrong things and b if you read the book and you look at like the environmental issues like what's coming if we're going to survive what we're up against what's coming starts to get really interesting and that's also like we should be having those discussions now right yeah. and i and i think those uh those things are starting to change and i but like these are not this is really disruptive technology. There's a lot of um, power that's coming into our hands. Some of it's amazing. Some of it, we want to talk about these things out loud. And so like that, that's another reason I think you want to put this stuff in, in sci-fi books. So people start having the conversations. So my hope is that, you know, millions and millions and millions of people read it because it's a blast. And then we get to have this conversation at a global level, especially if we're going to talk about mega languages. Yeah, for sure. Well, in this idea too, I think it was in our last conversation that we talked about this notion that technology allows us to be aware of what's happening around the world instantly. But part of the downside of that is that we don't have, we're not like evolved for the empathetic response necessary to process that kind of trauma, that kind of pain when we see refugees or things on fire or, you know, this conflict that's going on. What's your take on how we can, as individuals, how can we cultivate empathy in our day-to-day -day lives and not just so, have it as a concept? Yeah, I, uh, there's three, maybe, so 
we know from what we talked about already, altered states of consciousness will do it. So time spent in flow can have this impact. Certain meditation, I'll come back to this in a second, can have this impact. Psychedelics can have this impact if we're, if we're using them in nature. So one, those are, you know, those are some tools in the toolkit. For me personally, loving kindness meditation is the most astounding tool you could play with. And I, I point at loving kindness. You know, I'm a science-based guy. Richie Davidson in my alma mater, University of Wisconsin, has, you know, done most of the uh, of the brain work on meditation. And they found, you know, loving kindness, compassion meditation um, to be the most powerful. It absolutely increases empathy. The thing I also want to mention, because I'm a peak performance geek, and loving kindness meditation, and it doesn't, no, I've been meditating for 30 years and I've tried every system you could possibly and the loving kindness was the last one I went to because I was like, really? Like I'm praying for people and like it just felt weird. It didn't make sense. And is this really going to have the same performance benefits at an individual level as the other stuff? Like I got the empathy. I got it was going to give me more compassion. But I was like, okay, but like med regular meditation gives me focus. It gives me all this other stuff. Are you sure? <laughs> what I found, well, the answer is one, it does, but the thing that is really strange about loving kindness meditation, this shows up in the research as well, is, you know, so much of what gets in the way of our, uh, of optimal living and performance habits is just habits, ingrained habits, things we've done automatically. We don't even notice we do them. Loving kindness meditation, not only massively increases empathy in your lives, it shakes free. It makes visible more unconscious habits than almost anything I've ever seen. Like it's, it's a flow work is still, I think, you know, at the top of my peak performance list and, you know, but I, I am um, over the past year, I have really doubled down on, on, on playing with love and kindness as a system and everything that every other science researchers come before me has said about it turns out to be true. And I believe them now finally, but I was really impressed and it's, it's really phenomenal for empathy. Um, but I will, uh, one side note, cause you'll get a kick out of this, uh, at the flow research collective, you know, we're a research and training organization and we train everybody, but over the past year, we've been training a lot of law enforcement and some of the three letter agencies, I'm so glad to hear that. they want more empathy. And, you know, obviously people on the front lines of those jobs also want more peak performance, but they are really understanding that, Hey, wait a minute in the year, you know, in, in the 2020s peak performance um, means empathy. And so we're seeing this shift and flow is one tool. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, see, I'm also seeing, you know, people doing loving kindness meditation in places that you would not like normally expect it to start showing up for this reason. So um, those are, you know, interesting ways. And I, you know, but I mean, there's simple cognitive reframing tools, walk a mile in somebody's moccasins kind of thing will do it. And if you want to go all whiz bang, Stanford has been pioneering VR for empathy, VR simulations. They're the most famous one. They've got one for environmental empathy and things along those lines. Um, there was uh, when they wanted to alert people to the uh, civil war crisis in Syria, they, you, they, there was a VR empathy thing they did. The original one was they wanted people to know what it felt like to be a homeless, middle-aged black woman on the streets in Baltimore. Like, wow. And so they built that experience. And that was actually the first one. And it was so unbelievably powerful. 
you know, they can, they're essentially using VR as an intervention. And they used with the Syria thing, they used it with Congress, right? They put like Congress through it. I want to say it was Congress. Maybe it was the UN. Maybe it was both. But immediately afterwards, aid packages went through the roof. Wow. And, you know, so the, the cool thing about empathy is um, because of neur- mirror neurons, because of oxytocin, et cetera, we're hardwired for it. It's a very trainable skill. And this is something they figured out with loving kindness meditation. It tends to feed on itself. Mm. So like a little work, the work builds on itself. Um, almost automatically, like you, you have to keep it going, but it's not as hard. You don't have to work as hard as you think, because it's really built into us naturally. And um, probably like I always say this, and I've said this before, evolution shaped our brain and evolution's the biggest driver was reaction to scarcity, right? Mm. Two reactions. You can fight over dwindling resources, right? Or run away to avoid becoming somebody else's resources or get empathetic, get cooperative, get creative, make new resources. And so like cooperation, collaboration, all these skills need empathy and it's so foundational survival. It's really easy to kind of expand it. Uh, that, uh, that practice I've heard of this loving kindness meditation, um, a friend introduced me to this term metta, the, it's like a Tibetan, I believe, form of, and I understand there's yeah. different Obviously, different teachers, different schools. Yeah, I, so there's a guy named Yonge uh, 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 Mingyar Rinpoche, who, of all the Tibetan teachers, I find him, he's my favorite, predominantly because he worked with Rich Davidson, he's worked with the neuroscientists, so he speaks, um, he, he translates difficult meditative ideas into really great, great English. The clearest, I've been, as I said, studying and practicing meditation for 30, this dude is the first time where I was like, oh my God, finally, I get everything I'm doing here and it makes sense. So that his work was the breakthrough that actually led me into doubling down on, on love and kindness meditation because I was I was just interested in what Richie Davidson discovered. And I was like, wait a minute, this is, you know, they've worked with, there's like three main sort of Tibetan leaders who sort of, Dalai Lama was the head of it, but there's a couple other guys got very active and you can sort of pick your, your, your guru tradition in terms of science. And um, I've just really uh, done well with uh, young guys work. Yeah, that's great. And, and I'll just kind of interject here while I myself am very much a student by no means a master of meditation or certainly loving kindness meditation that I think any effort in this direction will yield benefit right? There's some people listening might think, oh, I've got to go find the right guru or I've got to go travel. I've got to renounce my lifestyle. Oh, no. Yeah, no, not at all. No. And you, the other thing is the most important thing you've got to let people know is the research is really clear on this. 12 minutes a day is all you really need to start. Like 12 minutes a day for two weeks gives you significant stress reduction. I think it's by, and, and, and some of the starting to get some of the cognitive benefits, heightened flow, less emotional reactivity, but like three weeks, a month in of 12 minutes a day, and you're actually starting to make fairly profound shifts. Um, so I think people get frightened away by the, like, I'm not doing it right. And, right. um, and they get frightened away by the, like, Oh my God, I've got to spend hours doing yeah. this every day to get anywhere. Who the hell has that kind of time? Yeah. Or they don't, or they don't see that it's working. 
It's, oh, I've been doing my 12 minutes a day for two weeks, but it, it doesn't seem to be working. Well, I, <laughs> I yeah, I, I, always, I wrote about this, I think, in Art Impossible. I always say that, like, it's, what's funny is because you just don't notice, like, we're, we're wired for cause and effect. Like, I do the thing and I get the effect. And what happens with meditation is, like, you do the thing and then, like, three days later, you're nice to your mother on the phone, yeah. right? You're more patient. You have time to listen a little bit where you, like, that's the payoff. And we don't notice it. Um, yeah. I start, you know, where I start to notice it over time is like certain business problems that'll come up again and again and again, or, or even personal problems where like, it's like, okay, we're back here again. And like now, like my reactions are so much quieter than they were two years ago. You know, and I, that's when I'm like, oh, wow, I really see the difference. And the big deal on the reaction is two years ago, like this bad crap happened and it tilted me out of my brain for like a day and a half. And I lost a day and a half. And now I'm like, Oh, here's that crap again. Yeah. This feels really unpleasant. But like a half an hour later, I'm totally normal again. That's yeah. a huge improvement. I just got a day and a half back. No, that, that that's huge. And it's real. Right. And it's not just the, our experience, which as you're saying, you know, we're less stressed out. We're whatever we're, we're better able to focus and that kind of thing. So we have the experience, but then there's also the result that we're able to produce that we might not have been able to otherwise. So you talk about this as one, one approach to cultivating empathy is a loving kindness kind of meditation or practice. You also talked about like simple reframes, but what do you mean? What do you mean by that? What's an example of that? Or how could somebody apply that? All right. I'll give you an example from uh, my own life. Um, <clears throat> my wife and I run an animal sanctuary, as I mentioned, and, uh, my wife has been doing this for decades. I had not when I came in. And like, if you've never, we had a small pack of dogs, eight dogs, but to go from eight dogs to 30 dogs, which is what we ramped up to. That's like, a lot of dogs. <laughs> living with a pack of dogs. And we don't, so we do, we, we wanted to specialize in like the worst of the worst scenarios. So you are a three-legged, one-eyed chihuahua with an abusive past, always in a bad mood, violent temper, heart disease, cancer, and mange, you're our guy. Wow. Some of these dogs are brain damaged. Some of these dogs have been very abused by men and they don't like men. One of these dogs was named Misha. He's a little chihuahua, still alive, still with us today. Um, but when my wife and I started doing this work, Misha had a horrific past, really bad trauma, didn't like men, didn't like me, and would literally stalked me. He, I would come back from work and he would like hide in the bushes and try to attack me. I would get up at three o'clock in the morning to go take a piss. He'd attack me when I'm on my way back into bed. <laughs> and I discovered that if you're shouting at a dog that has been seriously abused and traumatized, two things are true. One is bad for the bad dog and two is bad for your marriage, really bad for your marriage. Right? So um, that was not an option to me, but like, in our early days, this was a real issue. Like I was having problems with a bunch of the dogs, but Misha was really, he seemed to like always get me right at like the worst moment when I'm right when my temper was, you know, right on edge and I had to solve it and nothing was working. And finally I was like, I, it, I, I went, you know, in the family I grew up in, people lost their temper all the time. And we didn't feed into it. You were just like, you know, I'd lose my mind. People be like, oh yeah, Steven's having a nutty. Like, let's just calm him down and, you know, give him some love and it's okay, buddy. And, you know, that's how we were raised to treat each other when somebody was freaking out. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to treat Misha 
like I've been walking around talking about animal rights and equal rights or whatever. I was like, you know what? In my mind from now on, I'm going to treat Misha. It's when he's mad at me, it's like my brother having a nut. That's like, that's what's going on. That's how I'm going to treat him. And here's the funny thing. So my wife would always come to me and say, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is going on with this dog. And this is going on with this dog. And I saw this dog and I'd be like, what are you talking about? Like, you're making this up. None of these things are happening. I couldn't see what she was talking about. For the same perceptual reasons we were talking about earlier, I started treating Misha like my brother. And instead of like, he'd charge at me, I'd be like, oh, all right, you're, and I'd crouch down and start talking to him. And in two weeks, my empathy had expanded so much. Suddenly all the stuff that my wife had been talking about for years, I started to see. And I actually started to notice that like, Long before Misha attacked me, he would like hair on his butt, actually like a quarter would stand up. Mm-hmm. And if the moment that hair went up, if I dropped down and got to his level and just talked to him in a calm, casual level, he would calm back down and it killed the behavior within like three weeks. Wow. And Misha's been with us for now 15 more years and we're good friends. And um, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't even bark anymore when I enter the room. He just sort of, wow. hi, how are you? Um, but uh, <clears throat> that's just reframing. Yeah. So I always say like environmentalism really starts at home. It starts with like the plants around us the, and the ecosystem around us and the animals in our life, literally because once you start seeing them as, you know, on more of an equal footing with yourself, perception will change. So yeah. like if you've got a dog or a, like run this experiment in your own life and see what happens, like, don't take my word for it, run the experiment. See where you're at two weeks from now. It's kind of amazing because you, the other thing is it's really good for creativity because mm-hmm. normally the brain is dominated by, by sort of fear, right? We'll take in nine negative bits of information for every positive bit that gets through. That's normal ratio. All those extra bits, the things that we're not afraid of, that's the fodder for opportunity and creativity and innovation and you know all that stuff that we want. When you start doing these kind, this, this kind of practice, you start changing that ratio again and you'll start seeing new things so like it ends up being sort of really inspirational and creative it becomes a really fecund period creatively um because you've radically shifted the perception and suddenly you're getting new and interesting and novel data from the world and novelty is the birth of all innovation all creativity it's got yeah. to start there right that's really cool. And, you know, just a couple of things I want to reflect back to you that I'm hearing in what you're sharing that uh, I, I hope, you know, listeners will kind of hone in on as well. And maybe we'll serve them too, which is one is awareness that you expanded your awareness to where you could see the hair on, you know, Misha's back. And then, so there was awareness, but there was also choice and response to where you changed what you did, what your habitual response might've been. Totally. And therefore you got a different result. So this whole thing about awareness and choice. And then the other thing I love, a, a coach of mine once suggested to me that all healing involves a change in meaning. And I was like, that's a weird that's, thing to say. That's a weird thing to say. Exactly. <laughs> but, the, but the fact that you would say something like, I'll treat Misha like my brother having a nutty. And it's a change in meaning. And, and in a way, I think there was a, a, a real healing has taken. No, I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying your coach is wrong. I'm just saying I hadn't thought about it that way. That, I think you're, you're, yeah. it, it's a smart statement. Yeah. I was like, that's interesting. So I'm, I'm kind of hearing that too, but again, it's a choice for you to change the meaning in that, in that interaction. And then of course, those two things, again, the experience changes and the result changes. And you and can always something. change it back. 
you don't like right. it, change. You know what I mean? Like, that's right. This, none of this stuff is permanent. Our brain is neuroplastic, right? You, this, these yeah. are experiments you get to run with your own brain. Yeah, and then when you can treat life like a discovery instead of a drudgery or you know whatever, it's that's really cool. So awesome. Okay, I feel like I'm. I mean, I know this is still in the vein of the Devil's Dictionary, and we're exploring empathy and so forth. But um, I know we're coming to the end of our time here together. But let me just ask what. What haven't we talked about related to, to the devil's dictionary that, that you want to talk about? It's interesting. I'm going to pull back from my book. The, my book is great and everybody should read it. And nothing says Merry Christmas like the devil's dictionary people. But no, I'm going to pull back and talk about for a second the power of fiction and the powers of novels. Um, because I think we, so many fewer people are reading novels today and it's a shame and it's a shame from a peak performance empathy perspective. And it's like just in line with what we talk about, which is, I always say, if you want to get smarter, nonfiction is killer. It's giving you facts. You're learning stuff. It's phenomenal. Fiction though, gives you something that you can't get from the facts, which is perspective. It forces you to go live in another world for a little while. And that actually gives you perspective and perspective from a psychological, neurobiological uh, point of view. It's the foundation of the quality we term wisdom. Wisdom is an actual sort of measurable thing in the brain. Like we know what we're talking about with it. And the more different perspectives that you can sort of take in, internalize, hold in your head and be able to think in, the wiser, the smarter, the more creative, the more innovative you are also the more resilient and flexible you can be in the face of challenges, certainly it massively increases empathy. And so I just like, I'm stumping for fiction in general because I like it. It's so funny as, as, as a guy who like, I'm, I do a lot of peak performance training. And, you know, one of the things that I, that I, I'm always telling people to do is read more fiction. You have no idea, like you're costing yourself by not reading fiction. I, you know, I'm still a little biased towards nonfiction. I'll probably read, you know, two to three nonfiction books for every novel that I pick up. Um, but I pick up, you know, I, I definitely read the books and I try to, you know, read, read widely um, or around, around the field because I want those new perspectives. It's just so unbelievably useful. And, you know, I think it helps me be a, a, like a diverse thinker and a diverse person. And, you know, those are important things. Yeah, so, no doubt. That's no the doubt. thing. I that's the, I think I, that that's what I, I, I could we could have. I mean, I, I'm happy to talk about weird, geeky, cyberpunk, sci-fi stuff all day long, but I wanted to stump for fiction. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And you know what you're saying now too reminds me of something I read in Steven Pinker's book, "The Better Angels of Our Nature," mm -hmm. that explores how the world is actually a safer place than it ever has been, despite what the news media yeah, <laughs> might have you believe. Despite what the news media has you believe, it is, we, yeah. are, we are in the same place never before. And uh, one of the things he points out is that after the, half, not just after the printing press, but after the rise of the novel in Victorian England, that you know researchers have found that was a time when violent crime and so forth was reduced broadly. And when they were looking into it and they wondered why, one of the conclusions they, they were led to was that the novel, which allowed us to have other perspective and to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, what they've experienced, what they think and feel that that did rise to, you know, it did um, result in an increase in compassion in some way. Yeah. That's always stayed with me. And that, what you that, think, 
about the VR at Stanford. That's like the next oh. level of that. Yeah, it is the next level of that. The other thing I wanted to say, you asked me earlier, what, what do I think is going on in the world? We talked about a handful of stuff. I want to say one other thing that I'm really seeing, because you just mentioned how shrill the media has become. And I don't disagree. Um, and, you know, my partner, Peter Diamandis, always talks about the crisis news network, CNN. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I really filter a lot of my news for that reason. But the one thing that I have seen, um, and I just like, I just came back from a really like sort of fun, weird tour of America where I was in places like Cincinnati and Cleveland and all over New Jersey and like, you know, a lot of not the major cities um, places or and what I have found consistently over and over and over again, especially over the past six to eight months is the media may be very, very loud and there's talk in the big in New York and L.A., you get a lot of like where, where the medias tend to be concentralized. There's a, it's very shrill. But most other places, as far as I can tell, people I'm meeting are just like, you know what? We're just, yeah, we have these problems and we're going to fix them. We're like, we're done with the loudness. We're, you know, we're much more interested in cooperating and fixing the problem. This is like, and so like the reality that's coming out of the speakers is so different than the reality that's actually going on in, in, our, in our country. And my friends who are from all over the globe are saying the same things. So, you know, to me, that's like, that's, I, I like that. I, th- I like it when people are finally like, you know, enough with this. Like, yes, we know if it bleeds, it leads. And like, like you know, you're making more advertising revenue by scaring the shit out of me. But a bunch of us are like, not useful. Stop yeah. it. We're done. Let's fix yeah. the problems. Yeah, that's great. Well, the last, the last few questions I I'd love to ask you, um, just because I, I am curious about the creative process about writing and I think people listening are as well. Um, I remember in our last conversation, you shared something with me along the lines of with, with every book you write, or I don't know if this Uh, is fiction that at one point, there's at least one point in the process that you end up on the floor in tears. (laughs) Let's be clear. Let's, let's emphasize this. It's usually face down in tears punching the ground and it's usually the like stupidity of punching the ground like the pain that sort of pulls me back into consciousness i have to say the funny story i I told about this i thought i was nuts i literally thought i was i wouldn't tell anybody about this because it literally like once a year and then i heard this interview with uh, the late great david foster wallace before he passed and he says something like you know every time i write a book i find myself one day like face down on the ground punching the floor and i was like see it's not just me i'm not <laughs> yes. the only madman yeah was that the case for this too is that your experience in fiction or is this somehow different, no, I, different it, I didn't i don't think so um i will say um i've gotten a in over the past five years um it's not that the feelings don't happen uh-huh. it's that i now know what's coming so um, rather than getting like all that, I can get sort of right to the solution. This book, I will tell you, um, though you would never know it from reading this book, this is the most writerly technical book I've ever written. Like I did so much of that work that it, you can't see it in the book, but it is a, as you probably noticed about the plot, there are some way out ideas. In there. there are yeah. some really like a- big action story, crazy things happen. It's a lot of fun. But when you're doing stuff like that, plot discipline, like you have to know where you're starting and where you're going. Tangents are not your friend. 
Like, because stuff is so crazy as is, every time you introduce a tangent, you're like, this is something you've got to wrap up later. And yeah. when your plot's really tight and big and all that stuff, you got to be really, it's really difficult. And you have to like do a bunch of stuff to keep things moving. And as a, as a uh, thriller, you wouldn't know this, but there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't work in thrillers. Um, for example, a lot of internal monologue does it slows down thrillers. You can have a lot of uh, exposition, but you need it in dialogue much more novels that are slower, do it internally. But when you're moving and you want to move people through a story and have them really engaged in turning pages, you have to do a bunch of stuff in dialogue and we're doing stuff in dialogue. So that's freeing, but there's limits also because mm. people got to say it. It's got to be believable and you can't have, you know, if you suddenly have your character go on a like four page soliloquy about like Moby Dick, um, you know, like if that, that's going to bore the shit out of you. You know what yeah, I mean? Like there's a, there are rules for that stuff, even though I might like a four page soliloquy about Moby Dick. <laughs> yeah. How I'm did, you, fan. How did uh, the process of this unfold? Like how do you structure your time? And is it different writing fiction than nonfiction? Do you find like certain habits or routines are critical? No, I, I actually, uh, I, uh, I stuck to my, you know, I tried to, uh stick to my to my same habits i was doing a lot of other stuff so like my morning writing session i i always write for four hours every morning and then twice a week two afternoons a week i work with an editor all afternoon and we'll do other stuff and then i'll add in other writing sessions one of the things that like fiction can be really fun so like sometimes it was hard not to write too much to like sort of burn myself out because like it gets fun in there um Cause you're never quite sure what can like, even when your plots has been your characters do shit that surprises you. You know what I mean? You're like, Oh wow, really? Or you write something and you're like, Oh crap. What does that actually mean? Like if that's true in this world, well, you know, so stuff like that. And that's like, you get excited by your own, like you, you, you're sort of like, Oh my God, look at this. You know what I mean? Like, one of the reasons I think you create any world and definitely sci-fi is like, you're curious about stuff until you create a world and you put characters in that world, right? I wanted a world where all the technology in our world today had been rolled forward 15 years and big environmental challenges have been solved. But once I created that world and was living in that world, I was like, oh, wow. So this is what it's going to be like when AR and VR and crypto and like all these things are like, everywhere at a really sort of common level you know what i mean and like that stuff gets delicious um and i hemingway a lot of people have always taught with writing that like you want to sort of quit for the day when you're most excited so that the next day you come back and you're like fired up to start and that uh that was sort of like there was some force there where i had to like i had to discipline like oh this is so cool oh wait you're really excited you should you should pause now so you can you know really dive back in tomorrow at the front end of your writing session so there was some of that too which is unusual but yeah that that was different um with this book and and it, it really does help right because it's not only that you you end before you're burned out and you have some gas in the morning but you also know right where you want to pick up it's exactly right yeah it's exactly right and so you can i always start by editing what i wrote the day before so I get some pattern recognition and familiarity with language, a little bit of the focus and neurochemistry flowing. And then 
when I do face the blank page, I know exactly where I am. And I know like, and I feel it usually like you get to that line, you're like, Oh, the excitement sort of comes back. And you know what I mean? And that's great for focus and attention and all that stuff as well. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, the last thing I'll, I'll ask you here is just, um, you know, Stephen Pressfield in The War of Art talks about resistance <laughs> and about how pretty much all creatives in some form or fashion encounter resistance. Some people call it writer's block. Some people call it inertia, you know, whatever. Did you encounter resistance at any point? And if so, what, how did you overcome it? In, in Devil's Dictionary? Yeah. So... I did not encounter, I'll tell you, so that you, if you, uh, there is, there is a very large multi-character fight scene set almost like three quarters of the way through the book. Now, if you know anything about sports writing, you know that that the sports that make the best stories are slow and have single players. Golf makes really good writing. Cause like, it's really easy to follow the one person around the golf course. Baseball is next up on the list because it players run the bases and you can do it. Football is really difficult. Finding great football writing is, or hockey writing almost impossible because there's so many things happening at once. So the first time I wrote the fight scene with, I don't know how many characters are involved, but there are a bunch. It was like, 27 pages long or some such like I, all the things that happened in it and like i i think in the book it's probably five or six pages long um and it's a long fight scene so like there was this thing and i remember what i called up my so the good thing about working with the same editor and being very close friends with him is I've, we've worked together for 25 years and when i'm writing really badly michael just loses his temper Cause it's happened. So like, he doesn't like that happens unusually. And when it's really bad, he'll find himself angry before he realizes he's even angry. And like, he was just like, you know, this is shit, dude. What do you do? Like, you know what I mean? Kind of thing. And, um, I was one, I was embarrassed cause he was right. And I knew it. It was giant. And I was like, and so the battle to turn those, 27 pages or whatever it is and we this was on a tuesday and our next editing session was on a friday and i was hell bent on redeeming myself and i literally couldn't stop working i didn't stop i think i slept for like four hours one night and two hours the next night but i literally like i was so committed to getting it right and i knew like i was something about it was like if you if you walk away from this, it's gonna break you. It's too like mm. solve it, solve it, solve it. And and like, yeah. So that was that, that was that was one of them. Um, yeah. That was the big one. That was the one. That was the one. That's where I would have ended up a couple of years ago. I would have ended up punching the floor, <laughs> right? And instead, I was just like, no, no, no. I gotta fix this. But like, yeah, it it took a lot of work. Wow. And and there too is that idea again along the lines of it's often harder to write a short letter than a long letter. (laughs) There you were. So awesome. Well, any final advice, encouragement, instruction, request of people listening? Be good to each other. It's hard out there right now. Let's just be good to each other. Awesome. Thank you. The, The very, very last thing I'll just share with you is as with our previous interview, uh, I wanted some way to express gratitude 
to you for sharing generously of your time and your experience. So one way I've endeavored to, to express that is I've gone on Kiva.org. I've made a hundred dollar microloan to a woman named Jacqueline who's in Rwanda. She's going to use this money to actually um, build a place, a, a refuge for refugees. It's already in process. So. Oh, right. Yeah. So That's cool. Send me the Kiva link. I'll match your hundred dollars. We'll give her another hundred dollars so we can have a bigger rescue. Send me the Kiva awesome. link. I will. Uh, I will do I'm it. On it. Let's see. Let's see what good we can do in Rwanda today. Okay. Well, Stephen, thank you so much again. Um, the latest book, The Devil's Dictionary, a novel. Hope you pick it up and enjoy it as much as I am. And uh, with that, I look forward to the next time we talk. Thank you, sir. It's great seeing you again. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression, anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself in a community of other growth-minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.